afternoon and welcome to this second Grattan webinar on the COVID-19 crisis. My name is Paul Austin, I'm the editor of the Grattan Institute and I'm joined on our socially distant panel this afternoon by four of the best in the business, Grattan gurus I call them. Firstly, our CEO John Daly, our health program director Stephen Duckett, Danielle Wood who runs our budget policy program and finally, Brendan Coates, who is the Director of the Household Finances Program here at Grattan. Our aim over the next hour is to explore at least some of the health, economic, budgetary, political and social ramifications of this crisis via questions to our experts from me, but also from you, our audience members. Some of you have already submitted questions. And in fact, I can see some more questions scrolling in right now. So thank you for those. I know you will understand that it won't be possible to deal with all your questions over the next hour, but we'll do our best. What I can promise you is that the Grattan Institute will continue this conversation well beyond this webinar. Over the coming days, weeks and months, we're committed to contributing to informed, evidence-based debate on this terrible crisis. So Stephen, I want to start with you. Stephen Duckett is our health program director and also a former head of the Federal Department of Health. The big question for you, Stephen, is has Australia managed to flatten the curve? So uh, thanks, Paul. So what I want to show you here is a graph about how Australia is trending. So the diagonal line is, uh, is assuming that we continue on this exponential growth that we saw at the start of the uh, pandemic. Uh, and in Australia, we were doubling the number of uh, new cases, doubling the number of cases every three to four days. But what we've seen is just recently, in the last little while, we've started to turn the corner. We've we've dropped off that uh, exponential growth. These are, these are logarithmic scale, so a straight line is exponential. And you'll see with that black line, which is Australia, um, and the black dots are what happened, are, are the various weeks since uh, we, we started this, you see that we've actually turned the corner. The number of new cases is uh, way less than the exponential growth. So we're actually moving away, we've moved away from an exponential scenario to a, a linear scenario, possibly even a linear uh, a, a, a dropping scenario. So Stephen, on our last webinar two weeks ago, you were very concerned about the prospects of our hospitals and intensive care units being overwhelmed with COVID-19 cases. Have we averted that horror scenario or is, is that still a danger? So um, there's a, a couple of answers to that. So if we continue as we're going, we've averted it. So when we first published in this sort of area, we said that the ICUs will be overwhelmed this week, and that's not happened. There's, there's only a handful, 90, a handful of people, 87 or so people in ICUs across the whole country. So it's not, and we have 2,200 ICU beds. Uh, sorry, it's 87 COVID-19 patients in ICU. There are other patients in ICU, of course. So, you know, the, the ICU, Capacity is not overwhelmed at all. What we've got to worry about is if we lift the foot off the brakes, if we re remove the restrictions too soon, we could see a resurgence. So if I go back to that graph that I, I just showed you, what you see, if you look at the Singapore line, which is the dark red one, you'll see 
that they were going okay. And then they dropped the number of cases and that really came down just before they had the first, uh, the hundredth case. And, and then they went back up again. Similarly in China, really nice drop in the last week, the number of cases have gone back up again. So you've got to be really, really careful about what's called the second wave, uh, or maybe the third wave or the fourth wave or the fifth wave. You've got to be really careful about uh, taking the, the foot off the brake uh, way too soon. But the good news is if I show you another graph, essentially what we see is uh, that um, the, the local transmissions, which, you know, the overseas transmissions are what actually drove the numbers initially, you know, it's essentially an imported disease, but the local transmissions are actually starting to, depending on the state you look at, if you look at New South Wales, local transmissions are nicely trending down, only uh, 25 or so, just over 25 new cases uh, each day now, but, and in, in Victoria, again, depending on when you start drawing your line, local cases are sort of flat or trending down. So the, the local cases, the local transmissions are, are looking good, but obviously still way too many for us to be confident that uh, we've got this uh, under control. And Stephen, I heard you say this week that Anzac Day might be an important moment in this crisis. Now, that's about two weeks away. What's the significance of that date, the 25th of April? So um, it was just sort of doing some guesses. Obviously, it's, you know, you can draw a straight line through those, uh, those trends that we saw, and uh, you can get to a point where they may well be zero. Now, uh, and that's going to be a couple of weeks away from now. I'm not saying precisely on Anzac Day, but sometime in that order. Mm -hmm. And then you say, well, how long do you need to keep it at effectively zero until you're confident? Because this can bounce around a bit. The numbers we've got reported there are the numbers of tested people. And there's, we know there's transmission into untested people because until now, the testing regime has been tightly uh, controlled and we just didn't have enough tests to test everybody. So you've got to be really careful about transmission that's into the wider community that's not reported in those day, in those statistics. But you know, it's I'm looking. I, I think it's I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm not one who says we should actually start lifting the restrictions today or even on Anzac Day for that matter. But it's it's a time when we should be starting to assess what we should be doing. Cautiously optimistic. So just looking more broadly at the health system, Stephen Duckett. What have we learned from this crisis about the way we do primary care in this country and the way we run our hospital system? Well, um, you know, there's been a transformation of the health industry and, you know, amazing innovation taking place. You know, many, you know, the, the, in primary care, for example, uh, we've got a massive amount of shift into uh, telehealth and, you know, what was done in some practices already where they did phone calls and so on that were not directly remunerated is now remunerated and part of a core business. And it in fact is how they're, how they're working. Uh, obviously, some people still need to have a face-to-face -face consultation and should go for that if they need it, but a massive transformation occurring there. And we should be saying, is this only for COVID-19 or is this something that should continue in a post-pandemic environment. And there are other sorts of uh, 
similar examples. So a lot of, again, a lot of innovation. So some general practices, larger general practices, were able to mobilise and do things like, for example, establish drive-in clinics for, for, for testing. In other circumstances, uh, clinics have been established with Commonwealth funding where the testing is done by nurses, where the swab is done by nurse. Norman Swan, the ABC journalist, told a story that he went to a clinic and he was told to swab himself. And he said, is that just because I'm a doctor? And they said, no, we're getting everybody to, to swab themselves. So, you know, we've got to look, and we, there's a lot of innovation taking place about workforce roles and so on, that we can keep and we ought to keep and we ought to think about how that applies into the future. Thanks, Stephen. Ladies and gentlemen, you're watching a special webinar on the COVID-19 crisis with me, Paul Austin, and four policy experts from the Grattan Institute. I want to turn now to the economic crisis, and I'll start with you, Brendan Copes. Brendan's a distinguished economist, and he heads our household finances program here at Grattan. Brendan, what are the global, where is the global economy headed? And in particular, where's the Australian economy headed? Well, I think what's really striking at the moment, Paul, is the degree to which there is a synchronised slowdown in so much of the advanced um, advanced world at the moment. So develop, developed economies across the globe are seeing similar falls in, in economic activity because of the public health measures that we've put in place so far. And that's um, as a result, meaning that the size of the shock that's coming down the pipe to the economy from COVID-19 is pretty unprecedented. It's certainly bigger than anything if you abstract from the policy response and just think of the direct impact of uh, the public health crisis and what that's meaning for the economy, it's certainly larger, I think, than anything we've seen since the Great Depression. Uh, we're seeing, you know, some of the estimates put forward by, say, the OECD that something like a quarter of um, economic activity is being curtailed by, within these severe shutdowns. And obviously, that basically applies that every month that the shutdown takes place, you're essentially looking at a 2% fall in annual GDP. Um, and then you've kind of got, you've got the policy response, which we'll come to shortly, and that will have the effect of insulating a lot of people's incomes during this period, but it certainly doesn't take away from that direct effect. A lot of the people who are going to be paid via the job seeker and job keeper payments that we'll talk about shortly, they are getting that support to, to boost their incomes, but it's not going to mean they're necessarily going to be working. Um, so those direct effects are fairly baked in or largely baked in at the moment. Then there's the second round impact, and I think that's the one that's actually should be becoming more front of mind of policymakers now, and it's probably certainly what's worrying me more, which is that, um, you know, what happens to firms and households that aren't directly affected? What happens to their, to their incomes? What happens to their, for their expenses? Um, and do they scale back their discretionary expenditures? So for businesses in terms of investment, for, for, for households in terms of their expenditure, and you see this now, consumer confidence has crashed largest fall in consumer confidence last week that we saw at any point um, in the history of the survey. It came back up a bit this week with the stimulus or the support packages, the job seat, the JobKeeper wage subsidy, but it's still well down. And so that would suggest that maybe even that itself isn't doing enough to restore confidence. Um, ABS released some data recently showing the share of firms that are being hit, uh, having hit to their turnover, um, is larger than the number of firms that are directly affected by government social distancing mandates. And then we kind of have the, the, the broad macro models that are being put out by groups like the ba um, Bank of International Settlements, which is the, um, the global club of central bankers. Um, some of those models are suggesting that the hit to uh, the second round impact to the economy could be, you know, in some cases, maybe as large as the first round impact um, before you think about policy responses. 
And so since every country in the world is experiencing this, it also means a decline in, in our exports, in, in global demand of what we sell, uh, whether it be international students who can't make it here and um, or uh, the kinds of things like the commodities that we then sell on the global market where there's less demand for them because of the kind of shocks that are taking place around the world. So, so an unprecedented hit to our economy. Is it possible, Brendan, to talk about best and worst case scenarios on things like unemployment and debt? So if we think about unemployment, um, the first thing to think about is the hits large, the direct impact, we're doing some work on this that suggests it's around 20, perhaps 20% of jobs that are basically disappearing, um, 20, 25%. Now that's gonna be the, translating very differently under the unemployment rate for two reasons. One, labor force participation is gonna fall. So not everyone who is finds themselves not in work is gonna be looking for a job and therefore they won't show up in the unemployment rate because that is the definition you have to be looking for work. Uh, and secondly, the job keeping package will actually obscure quite a lot of people who are otherwise unemployed because they'll still be being paid by their employer. And therefore when the ABS asks them, you know, are you being paid by your employer? Yes. Uh, have you had a recent attachment to an employer? At least certainly at the start, yes. Um, then you won't necessarily show up in those numbers. So it'll, it'll obscure the hit that's still there in the underlying economy. Um, Ultimately, the best and worst case scenarios depend on two things. They depend upon the duration and the intensity of the public health response, which Stephen's been talking about and I imagine John will talk about soon. Um, that is the most important thing and also the thing that is most uncertain, which is why I think economists are finding it so hard to estimate what the full effect is. Um, so what I think we'll know more in the next couple of weeks about the long run economic hits if we know what the potential end games look like. So there's the eradication end game with the short, sharp shutdown. Um, my prior is that's probably going to have a lower impact on economic activity in the long run um, than a sustained uh, period where we try to balance the, um, we try to manage the flatten the curve. Um, but we'll know when countries like Singapore and Japan and um, you know, how, where, where they go in the coming weeks and also China as to whether it can manage out the other side. Um, the other fact that thing that's going to really affect what happens in the long term, the worst case scenario is what government does in response from here. So these second round economic effects are very large. Um, if, we, if the government were to follow through in the rhetoric of Scott Morrison that suggests we will snap back um, policy in six months time, uh, it's likely we're gonna be in a fairly severe recession. Unemployment takes a long time to recover. We could find ourselves uh, making that problem a lot worse if we expect that we just go from economic uh, support um, to straight back to normal without um, some policy in between. Basically, if the patient comes out of the ICU, you don't stop treating them. The treatments just change. Uh, so what does that mean for debt? Um, I think what it means is that the economic cost is large, but it's temporary. And the way we're shielding that is with debt. Um, so we're defraying the cost of this upfront shock over a long period of time and potentially over lots of different people because we're working out later who pays it back. The debt hit is, you know, it, it's, it's very uncertain. It could be $500 billion, could be a lot of money. I think the point is that that insurance, that insurance government's providing to people at the moment is actually very cheap uh, because the, the, the debt, the interest rate on government debt at the moment for 10 year bonds is 75 basis points. So 0.75% less than the cost of inflation. Um, that's very cheap insurance. Um, so I don't think it should distract us at the moment from worrying about doing what we need to do uh, because the interest costs are going to be very small and debts in the past, like during the Great Depression or, or sorry, during World War II, uh, they didn't necessarily get repaid. Um, we're in a world of low growth, low inflation now, maybe it'll take longer, um, but it's, it shouldn't be front of mind at the moment. 
Okay, shouldn't be front of mind, but ultimately who is, who might pay for all that debt, Brendan? That's going to be a very big debate, isn't it? Well, we're already seeing that debate start to play out now, Paul. There's been, franking credits has been reintroduced to the public debate. Um, and you'll certainly see more of that calls because people are people are forward looking. They can see that this is going to come down the pipe. You know, I think what we've done is we've taken a cost that's largely been hit, hitting some people, younger people in work, um, and we're through government actions defraying that cost over the whole community, um, and we're deferring who will end up paying. And that is the right policy response at the moment because if you try to work out who pays now in the middle of the crisis, you won't do what's necessary to solve the crisis. Um, you know, I think what this does is it opens up a whole, it's future generations that will pay um, and current generations to the degree because uh, that we, we do raise some taxes soon, but it opens up a whole bunch of policy space, frankly, that governments have a lot more uh, space to work with in thinking about what kind of policy changes they'd like to make because there's clearly going to be need to, to pay this debt burden back at some point. Um, and there are clear intergenerational reasons why you might think that you would look to some policies like super tax breaks. You know, franking credits is obviously going to be in the public debate, uh, but we think the super tax changes would be better. You know, some of the, 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 the regular list of policies um, on the revenue side to help pay it back, they're going to come back again. Danielle, I want to bring you in here. Danielle Wood is the head of our budget policy program at Grattan. She's also president of the Economic Society of Australia. Danielle, the biggest government announcement since we last spoke on this webinar has been the $130 billion wage subsidy package. Tell us what that is and much more important, will it work? Right, it's a huge package. I think the biggest single spending package that any government has introduced. I think last time we had the webinar, we were talking about the first two packages being 60 billion and would it be enough? Um, the answer was very clearly no. Um, so this package essentially commits the government to paying the wages of about 7 million Australian workers. It's $1,500 a fortnight. It is paid to workers via their employer and um, employers are eligible to, to take part in that scheme if they've had a sufficient hit to their turnover. Um, so this is a very sizable scheme. Um, I like it because it's big. And, you know, quite frankly, putting a lot of cash into the economy right now is a good move, given those types of scenarios that Brendan was talking through. It does give a lot of breathing space to households and to business. And, you know, I don't think we should underestimate the psychological benefits of the scheme um, for those people that, that had been stood down and were either, you know, standing in those queues outside of Centrelink or thinking that they were going to have to be in the next week or two. Um, the idea that instead, you know, even if you're not working, that you are still attached to your employer, you're still getting your pay via the employer um, is, a, is a massive relief, I think, to a lot of households. So I think that's been a really important part of the scheme. Um, the other thing about the scheme that I really like is that unlike um, schemes in the UK and, and other places in Europe, uh, it applies to all workers in effective businesses, not just those that are stood down. Um, so it actually provides an incentive for employers to keep people doing something. Um, so, you know, if we think of the, some of the innovation that we've seen since the shutdowns, you know, the gyms offering online lessons or the cafes offering take-home meals, um, under schemes where you're only paying stood-down workers, a lot of that dries up. Um, this provides an incentive for that to, 
continue and actually to bloom. So we, we give the economy the best chance of, of ticking over, admittedly at a lower level than before, but some activity taking place and people staying attached to their jobs. So that's great. Um, of course, when you're rolling out a scheme of this size and at this speed, um, you know, some of the more beautiful design principles end up getting sacrificed on the altar. Um, to make this fast and to make it simple, it's been introduced as a flat payment for all workers. Um, that means that for people that were previously working part-time, perhaps um, casuals, if they're eligible, they've been employed for more than a year, um, some of them will be getting a pay rise. Um, quite a significant section of the population um, will now be on a higher level of pay because this compensates people at an annual equivalent of about 39000 a year. Um, on the other hand, there's going to be a lot of people that were earning more than that, middle-income, high-income workers. Um, employers will have an incentive to bring down their hours, so they're only paying them the JobKeeper payment, 1500 a fortnight. Absolutely better than losing your job, don't get me wrong, but those people will take a substantial income hit. Um, so there is some perversity in the, the flat rate, but you know, given the trade-offs that the government was facing, given the need to get this out the door quickly, I think that those... Um, our trade-offs that we should all be able to live with. Um, there will still be ongoing questions about specific design elements, um, the fact that shorter-term casuals are excluded, the fact that temporary migrants are excluded, very big group, um, can't get access to job seeker, can't get access to job keeper. That is a very big issue that we've left a sizable group, uh, a lot of whom just can't get home um, without a safety net. So I think there are still some specific design issues that the government will need to address. Okay, but overall, it's, it's big and it gets a tick from you, but how does our jobs package compare to what other countries are doing, Danielle? Um, well, so um, I already mentioned one aspect that's different to some of the other schemes is that it, it gets paid to people who are still working. Um, it's also big in the scale, actually. So if we look at schemes that are designed more like ours, uh, like New Zealand, um, Canada, that apply to both workers that have been stood down and, and people in the workforce. Um, the, the level of compensation is reasonably generous, particularly for people um, at the lower end. Um, the other thing I think that is a big tick for it is that it's extended longer than some of those other schemes. So this has been put in place for six months. Most of the other international schemes are there for three months. Uh, I expect that they will be extended. But I think there is something to be said for giving businesses and households that additional level of certainty up front. Okay, Danielle, yet another government announcement this week was on uh, commercial rents. What's the government doing on that score? And again, will it work? So we, I remember talking about this issue last time. I think it really was the sort of the sleeper sitting there and it's taken the government quite a long time to get to a resolution on this. And there are tricky issues, but you know, at the bottom line, is that for those businesses that are on the front line here, um, they've shut their doors, the key unavoidable cost they face is rent, that's 80 to 95% of their outgoings at the moment is rent. And the only way they were gonna be able to get through this and open up after hibernation was some kind of measure to help them address the cost of that rent. Um, what the government has done is put out a mandatory rental code it says that if the business has taken a sufficient hit to its turnover, um, big enough to qualify for the JobKeeper payment, the landlord must negotiate with them on the rent. Um, they should be negotiating a rental um, 
a rental discount or a, um, a rental relief that's proportional to their reduction in turnover. Um, so that's good. It's quite targeted. So if your business is fine and ticking over um, in some other form, you don't get a rent reduction. If you've taken a big hit, you get a sizable reduction. Um, what's concerned me about the package is I'm not sure that rental relief is big enough because it can be a combination of rent waivers and rent deferrals. Um, so if you're a business that's had to close your door, such as a gym, your turnover often is reduced to zero. You're still at the moment, say, paying $10,000 rent a month. The landlord under this code can come to you and say, right, we're going to give you a waiver for half of that, $5,000 a month, but the other $5,000 is just a deferral. Um, so in six months' time, when you open up again, you may have a pretty sizable deferred rent bill hanging over your head. A lot of businesses operate on pretty low margins. Um, they are forward-looking, and many of them will just say, look, I'm not, I'm not going to be profitable um, with, with that on the other side, so I might close, choose to close my doors today. So what I'm worried about is this is not sufficient relief to keep um, a lot of those businesses open if the shutdown extends more than a few months. And Brendan Coates, the government's also making a point, a big point, of, of seeking to help households through this crisis. What's the government doing for households, for individuals? And again, is it going to be enough? Well, Paul, the main thing that the government's doing is uh, what uh, Danny's already spoken about. The job keeper payment is a wage subsidy payment to, to firms, uh, but for a lot of people, it's essentially a way of ensuring that they remain uh, paid through this period, either at the rate of the JobKeeper payment of $39,000 a year, or um, uh, so that the firm itself can keep paying them. And I think that that's, that's the biggest thing that the government's done to help households. It's also obviously done um, two stimulus payments of $750 that are going to some to particular income support recipients. Uh, that will help again, I think, as we said last time, a large portion of that's going to pensioners. Uh, they're probably not the group that's the most hard hit by this, but given the rest scale of the rest of the package that's going on, um, you know, it's probably hard politically to leave them out. And then you have the doubling of the job seeker payments. So they're essentially the doubling of the new start rate uh, because of the coronavirus supplements being put on top, which takes that payment to about $29,000 a year now, which is actually, you know, quite a lot of money if you're um, someone in the bottom 20% uh, of the income distribution or 30% of the income distribution. So the way I'd characterise it, Paul, is that we've basically got to the point where low and middle income earners, setting aside liquidity issues around how long it's going to take for the payments to go, uh, to arrive, and setting aside questions about the gaps that Danny's mentioned around um, temporary migrants and um, casuals less than 12 months. A lot of people are going to be relatively insulated by this shock. Um, and I don't think the public commentary is caught up with that, partly because there is the payment itself you know, which might be worth um, $40,000 in the case of JobKeeper or 30, close to 30 in the case of JobSeeker. But if you lose your income, you also get a lot of extra family tax benefit. If you're a renter, you probably get rent assistance and you formally didn't. And, you know, we've talked a lot for a long time about the fact that there are high effective marginal tax rates on low and middle income earners because of family payments and because of income support. Uh, the flip side to that is that high effective marginal tax rates largely insulate you to a fair degree from the shock to your income that comes about uh, if you lose your job, if you're a family. So the, the other point that's really worth emphasising is the job seeker payment in particular is paid 
at um, at double the rate for couples compared to singles. So couples are actually getting more than they normally would. Uh, normally, your income support payments are one and a half times for couples relative to singles. So the bottom half of the income distribution is relatively well insulated. Who's not well insulated are middle to high income earners because if you're obviously earning $80,000 a year, which is you know the top 20 20 odd percent of people 20 30 percent of people um then you are talking about replacing a much smaller share of your income so the government role of providing insurance there's much less of that going on there and they're kind of just what we were expected to cop it on the chin um they obviously have more likely to have access to other liquid assets or um, other assets they can they can use so super is the big one that's been put on the table so being able to withdraw $20,000 for even, say you, you're paying 500 bucks a week in rent, that's enough to pay your rent for 10 months. Um, but it does have a, a, an, an important cost, which is that, so if you're asking, if, if government's done enough for households who are, who, to make them survive, the answer is for low and middle income owners, probably yes, um, subject to fixing these holes that we're talking about. Have they done enough to forestall the kind of second round macro impacts that we're I think, well, I'm certainly quite worried about. Probably not. Um, and certainly for high income earners, allowing them to draw down those balance sheets does have a cost uh, in terms of where they're going to be financially coming out of this crisis and therefore what they're going to be willing to spend. Because the longer, given the public health crisis is so uncertain as to its duration, the more that households and firms, and I think there are more problems on the firm side still as Danny that one uh, laid out, the more they're, um, they're exposed to that uncertainty, the more likely they'll reduce their discretionary spending now, deepening the trough now, increasing the rate of unemployment, deepening the recession, and therefore making it harder to come out the other end. Okay, but let me ask you about one more micro matter, perhaps. Residential rents. Can or should the government be doing more on that score, Brendan? Well, I think it just as, as we said, the low, most, most renters are low and middle income earners. Um, a lot of low-income earners are actually going to get a pay rise out of this, as, as, as Danny talked about. So the case for rental holidays for residential renters is much, it's a, it's a weaker case, certainly, than that for commercial renters. For commercial renters, the market value of that shop front is pretty much zero right now, and they're stuck in contracts where they have to keep paying. For residential renters, the market value is probably falling, uh, certainly as migration is going to fall as a result of this, and if, um, you know, we had stories of the other day that Airbnb, New South Wales was banning Airbnb, um, that obviously increases, a, adds a substantial amount of rental stock back onto the market because no one is consuming housing or when they, when they, when they go on holiday. Um, that means rent should fall, but it doesn't necessarily mean they should fall anywhere near as much as commercial leases. And on the flip side, you've got landlords who are also largely households. So it's a question of it, the question of who should pay um, is a tricky one and um, something that, you know, we've tossed around on the commercial side and, you know, to a degree on the residential side is if you're going to do holidays, it's not necessarily always clear that the landlord is, is should, should be the unlucky one who pays any more than the tenant who's the unlucky one to lose their job should pay. Um, there is potentially a role for government there, but if you were going to do anything, you would definitely do commercial before you touched residential. Um, and so the only ones that are left hurting on the on the on the rental side will probably going to be more high income earners and there's just not that many of them that rent 
um, and they've probably got access to super. So the, the, the need, the imperative is less there than what it is on the commercial side. Okay, John Daly, can I bring you in here? John's the CEO at the Grattan Institute. I want to ask you about the big picture, John, about where all this is heading. The Prime Minister has started to talk about the road out of this crisis. Where is that road, John, and are we on it yet? Well, I think as Stephen illustrated, we're already at the point that um, new cases per day are falling. And that's true of a number of countries around the world, in Italy, in Spain, in Germany, uh, in New Zealand. Um, that means that not only the Prime Minister, but a lot of other people have started talking in the last few days about, well, what is the road out? Um, and the short answer is that we don't know. And indeed, I think the Prime Minister said, we don't yet know exactly how we're going to come out of this. And, and we continue to have options. Uh, and some of those options actually depend on things that we don't know yet, but we're likely to know a lot more about over the next couple of weeks. So option one is that we actually decide, look, oh, this was a terrible mistake and we just can't let the economy go back to how it was. I think we are increasingly seeing around the world that that is not a very good idea. And more to the point, no government has actually succeeded in deliberately executing that strategy apart from maybe Iran, uh, which didn't turn out so well. Um, and the United States has not in fact executed that strategy deliberately, although it may well still wind up executing it by accident. Um, it has in fact shut down significant parts, but by no means all of the United States. Um, there's a variation on that, which says, you know, let's just kind of let lots of young people get infected, but somehow make sure that no old people get affected. It's worth remembering that is an incredibly high risk strategy. One of the reasons that old people's homes and, and old people much more generally in Australia are doing okay at the moment is, partly that they're taking a great deal of care to segregate themselves, but also the reality is most of the people they come into contact with are not in fact infected. Uh, whereas in a world in which, um, you know, far more people, uh, particularly younger people are infected, then the chances of any chance um, uh, contact between an old person and a young person ultimately communicating the disease are much, much higher. And that's why it's a much higher risk. So I don't think that I don't think that those two are really seriously on the table. I think that there are then two other strategies that are very seriously on the table. One is to say, um, we're gonna try and get infections down, which is roughly speaking what we've done. And then we're gonna try and um, keep economic activity suppressed enough that the infection rate stays at one or pretty close to it, um, such that there is no big increase in the number of cases. There's then also no big increase in and overwhelming increase in demand on the health system. Now, Australia is where it is today and it appears to have an infection rate which is less than one. In other words, each person is infecting, each infected person is infecting less than one other person. We can see that in terms of the rates of local transmission that Stephen put up a little earlier. Um, and we can see that they are effectively declining per day. Uh, and that's in a world in which, by and large, the construction sector is still functioning. Um, uh, obviously, um, a number of other businesses are still functioning. We haven't shut down. Public transport is still functioning. Um, uh, some childcare is still functioning. Um, we haven't shut down nearly as hard as, for example, places like New Zealand. Now, the flip side is New Zealand has shut down much harder, and it looks like their infection rate is falling a lot faster. So we can certainly essentially do what we're doing at the moment for the indefinite future, and we won't see um, uh, a big explosion in cases. Indeed, it's probable that we could increase the amount of economic activity somewhat and not see an infection rate over one. 
We certainly can't go back to where we were six months ago because we know the infection rate in that world is a lot more than two, and then you get this explosive exponential growth. But it's very plausible that um, community behaviour has changed in a semi-permanent way. People are not going to be kissing each other and handshaking and all the rest of it for any time, uh, unless they're their own family, any time in the near future. Um, and so those things will reduce infection rates. But we don't actually know in an Australian context what activities we can release and at the same time stay with an infection rate pretty close to one. Um, so and that's going to be slightly... John, this goes to a question that Dag, one of our viewers, has asked. Is there a Goldilocks moment when we'll be able to ease restrictions without letting the virus loose again? Well, I think the short answer to that is there is no Goldilocks moment while there are still cases in Australia. Um, uh, while there are still cases in Australia, it's a pretty fair bet that if you change the restrictions and this virus will keep growing the way it grew in the past uh, and that won't kill you in week one and it won't kill you in week two. But as we've seen, by the time you get to week 10 or 11, it gets very unpleasant very fast. Um, and, and of course, there's a big danger that if you take off too much too early, that you wind up with what Tyler Cowan described as the, the economic yo-yo. You, you take things off, few businesses go back, you realise that the infection rate's going too fast, you have to shut those businesses down again. Um, and badly as business confidence has been affected at the moment, I think that kind of yo-yo would affect business confidence even more, be an even worse economic outcome. And so obviously- how, worse... how, John, how can things restart? Can, can international travel, for example, ever return in Australia? Well, I think international travel is going to be the last thing to restart. And we might come to that last for that reason. Um, so I've talked about strategy one, where you just let enough off um, that you can get as much as you can, but without seeing infection rates materially above one. And so you're, you're, the number of people infected doesn't rise particularly rapidly. And obviously, if you want to do that, then you want to get your total number of people infected down as you know a long way, certainly a lot fewer than we've got at the moment um, to do that. Strategy number two is one in which you say, we're really going to try and get ourselves more or less to zero. Uh, that's the eliminate strategy. It's what New Zealand is very explicitly trying to do. And in that world, you say, we haven't got any cases in the, in the country. We're going to keep very tight control over the borders. And we're then going to um, allow a lot more activity in Australia. Not only will we allow footballers to play by themselves and then be televised, we'll actually allow people to show up and see the game. Um, because if there's nobody who's infected in the crowd, then there is no problem. Now, of course, that is a relatively high risk strategy unless you're really sure that there are no infections floating around. So it means you've got to be very, very tight about your border. And it means you have to be very, very fast um, in order to find new infections. Now, in effect, that is what China has done. They have appeared to have reopened a lot of economic activity and they do not appear to have substantial increases in new cases. They really got the, the um, uh, infection rate down to, oh, the number of people infected basically down to zero. And they've also put in place mechanisms to, to respond very, very quickly whenever they find somebody who is infected so they can trace back all the other people who might have been infected, effectively constrain their activity, but not everybody else's, uh, and therefore keep the thing in check. Now, this brings me to the other things that we don't know. So not only we, we don't know, as I've already mentioned, um, which activities will have precisely which effect on the infection rate, um, although we've got some guesses, um, but, but understanding precisely how that'll work in an Australian context, we get, we, you know, a bit suck it and see. 
we also don't know how quickly um, can we get many more tests in place. So obviously, if you could test literally every single person who came to a workplace every single day, um, then you can probably keep the lid on this thing pretty effectively. Now, you might look at that and say, well, geez, the cost of that would be high. But the answer is, look, the marginal cost of running a test is not that high. And particularly if what you in fact do is you amalgamate the swabs from you know 20 people at once, uh, and very occasionally you're going to have to go and then retest those 20 people. But most of the time, you're just going to discover that none of them have got anything. Um, uh, so the marginal cost of those tests is not high. The problem, of course, is that we have nothing like enough tests in Australia to be to be um, testing every single person who comes to work every single day. Uh, and it's unlikely that the industry can be scaled up fast enough to do that um, anytime within the next three weeks. But on the other hand, you think about the basic cost benefit of it and you say, look, the marginal cost of a test can't be more than about $20 uh, once we scale this up. Um, the person is going to do an awful lot more than $20 worth of activity once they get to work. That sounds like a pretty good trade-off. Um, but as I said, it's not one we've got realistically. And the big thing we don't know, so we can we can say with a lot of confidence, it is very hard to do tests with poor cost benefits. Um, pretty much any test you do is going to pay off in that sense. On the other hand, um, uh, we don't know how fast we can get to that kind of scale. The other thing we don't know is what kind of systems um, can we put in place and are we prepared to put in place to make tracking and tracing very effective, such that if there is somebody that is infected, that we can work back, find out who else they have spoken to in the last five days, um, uh, test them very rapidly um, and prevent any um, unexpected outbreak gathering any kind of steam. So we don't know the answers to those questions. I would hope that's what we are working on. If we think we can get a lot of testing happening uh, on that kind of mass scale, and if we think we can get very effective track and trace systems put in place, then we can probably afford to let, once we've got infections down to a much lower level, we can afford to let things go a lot more. We can all afford to start going to football again. Um, uh, in a sense, the, the economic snapback won't be to 100%, but it'll be a lot more than you would get if you were simply trying to keep um, uh, the infection rate to one, um, but, but without those kind of systems in place. So those are the basic choices we face. As I said, in terms of working out which of those is the best from here, that slightly depends on those things I've mentioned. Those are things that we don't know right now, but we might have a much better handle on as they develop over the next couple of months. John, we're getting a stream of questions for you. And I guess if I can distill them, our viewers want to know this. How will this crisis change policy and politics in Australia? How will we be different? Not sure if you can hear me, John. I think we might have lost John there. I'm going to put that question to Danielle uh, in John's absence while we seek to unfreeze our CEO. How's this changing our politics and our policy, Danny? Would you like me to go, John? Looks like you're back there. <laughs> I'm back if that helps. <laughs> go on, John. I know you'll be upset if you don't get to answer this one. But <laughs> I'm sorry, you might have to repeat the question, Paul. <laughs> How will is, this is a this is a distillation of lots of questions from our audience, John? How will this crisis 
change policy and politics in Australia? It's an easy one. <laughs> what are we going to do with the remaining 15 minutes of the, <laughs> of the session? Um, so I think um, obviously it's, it's substantially changed attitudes to a lot of things. Um, when you've just doubled New Start, it's hard to see a future government halving it. Will they reduce it? Probably. Um, but will they halve it? I'd be surprised. Um, so that's just at a really micro level. I think at a much bigger level, um, uh, lots of things we've been told for many years were all impossible. They were too politically hard. We couldn't possibly imagine a country doing that. Indeed, one of the objections that was made to the analysis that we did early on uh, about Australia's response to this crisis was we were told, look, it's all very well for China to shut down their, in their entire economy and tell everyone to stay at home. But no democracy like Australia is ever going to do that. Well, you know, here we all are. Um, so the impossible turned out not to be so impossible. Um, and I think that across a lot of policy areas, we'll look at it. Um, there's a huge number of policy areas where we've made very little progress over 15, 20 years, because we were told it was all too hard. And I think there's going to be a lot more looking at those areas and, and thinking about, well, maybe they are possible. I think the third way it's going to change is um, uh, on any view of life, government's going to spend a lot of money over the next 12 to 18 months somebody is going to have to pay for that. Uh, and um, uh, inevitably that means somebody is gonna have to pay more tax. And that means some of the taxes that we have been told were impossible are gonna become possible. Uh, on the other hand, um, on the productivity side, some of the things that we have been told were all too hard because you know there'd be too many losers. Um, will become possible. And I think one of the key things that will come out of this crisis, not only have we discovered the impossible things are in fact possible, we've also discovered that um, sometimes in policy life, there are winners and there are losers. And for 20 years in Australia, we've been in a world in which governments were reluctant to do anything in which there was a loser. We've just discovered that, you know, we live in a world in which there really are losers. The bottom line is lots of people are going to be coming out backwards as a result of the current crisis, including as a result of what governments have done. And I think it will probably give governments a lot more courage to take on tough policy reforms where they say, this is why it's in the greater interests of the country. Um, we accept that there will be some people who will do less well out of that, but you know that's how policy works. Um, and the precise fact that we've lived through, we will have lived through six, nine, 12 months of much more difficult things will mean that we'll be much more prepared to do more difficult things in the future. At least that's my hope. Um, uh, but on any view of life, this is going to be a, a, a defining change for our lives, much bigger, I suspect, in fact, almost certainly much bigger than 9-11. Um, the other thing that, of course, will change is that there are any number of industries that have probably changed for good. Um, I think the reality is there'll be much less domestic business air travel in Australia for a very long time because um, businesses have discovered that things like Zoom actually work pretty well. Not quite the same as being there, but it's a, you know, it's a lot better than many people thought it was. Um, uh, there are a lot of restaurants that have probably got a lot better at the takeout business. Um, and a lot of people who will continue to want to have that at home. I'm sure that some people want to go to restaurants again, um, myself included, but, um, and Danny definitely. Um, but... Um, you know, I suspect we'll all be in, uh, having more takeout. We'll also probably be in a world in which, for example, bread shops will sell less bread because more people have learned how to bake their own bread and have discovered it's actually quite fun. Um, so there'll be huge changes. I don't think we yet know what all of them will be, um, 
but I think we will inevitably look back and our history books will be divided into pre-2020 and post-2020. Thanks, John. Now, I'm going to run around the panel as best I can with a range of questions from you, our audience. There's lots of them, so let's see how we go. I'll start with you, Danielle. Uh, this is from Andrew. What are the lessons for the war on climate change? Well, I think there's a few things there. I mean, so interestingly, um, we've been tracking emissions data in Australia. We have not seen um, the same drop that they have seen in other countries, and we think that is because we've actually kept more of our um, heavy industries, et cetera, open compared to a lot of countries. So we're not seeing that kind of big drop in immediate emissions. But I think the, the longer term lessons go to the issues that John was just raising about the art of the, the art of the possible, really. So you know, we've been one of a handful of countries around the world that have really struggled with the debate around climate change and taking meaningful action on climate change. We've had, I think, up to 10 policies that have either got up or been seriously considered that have fallen by the wayside over recent years. So we come into this crisis without uh, a proper policy to reduce emissions. Um, in a world where we've shown that we're willing to take significant action, you know, really strong action that hurts the economy in order to save lives in the short term. Um, you know, I would have thought it's much easier to mount a case to take some, you know, what are much smaller actions, quite frankly, most serious climate change policies are not going to, um, you know, massively rip into the economy, that they will have a cost um, to, to save a lot more lives in the longer term. So, you know, I'm hopeful that it will help galvanise some action on this front. Um, the, the fear, of course, is that it could go the other way in a world where we come out of this with um, much higher debt levels, people feeling vulnerable, the economy you know, in a bit of a, a weak state, um, that, that we just say, oh, you know, it, it's too hard. We need to worry about the here and now. Um, so I think this is one of those ones which could go either way, but I, I'd really like to hope that the experience that we've gone through here suggests that we can do more and we're willing to do more for future generations. Thanks, Danny. Stephen Duckett, a couple for you. This one's from James. What are the prospects of a vaccine and are we right to assume there will be a vaccine? So uh, there's any number of research groups across the world chasing vaccines, so chasing development of vaccine, all pursuing different paths. Um, there's no certainty that we will ever have a vaccine. There are lots of illnesses where there's no vaccine at all, uh, even though people have been pursuing this forever. Um, if we are going to have a vaccine, the issue is uh, the testing that you need to do before it's safe and you're confident that it actually works and it's safe to use in humans. And you, that takes a while, but you can slow that, you can speed that up. But then you have to make the vaccine. And so scaling up a vaccine, for example, in Australia, so there's 25 million doses, uh, is, is a big task. And so most people say that if we are, if a vaccine is um, developed and uh, approved tomorrow, it might take 12 months before it's in, in large enough scale that we can actually 
have a, a vaccination program. So it's it's not a solution for tomorrow. Another one for you, Stephen, from, from Christopher. Does Australia have enough PPE, that is personal protective equipment for health workers? No. What are we going to do about that? Ration it, basically. So one of the, uh, you know, so people say, oh, why aren't we all wearing masks like they do in Southeast Asia, for example? Well, we just don't have enough masks, let alone all the other PPE that uh, that is required. And so right from the start, there have been a number of uh, rate limiting factors. Uh, one of them is the number of testing kits. One of them is PPE. Uh, that's why elective surgery is cancelled in private hospitals, to, to ration it, to make it available if we need it. We thought initially, and I thought initially, that ICU beds was going to be a critical factor. I think it's less so now. So, you know, unfortunately, yes, it'd be nice to, to have it all, but we don't have enough. Stephen, you, you mentioned face masks, and Jim asks this. What's your position if there were enough masks? Would it be advantageous for people in public, the general public, to be wearing face masks in Australia? So it's certainly the advice from uh, reputable organisations. I think the WHO has suggested people wear face masks. I'm not sure that it's cost effective. That is, uh, you know, especially in an environment where you've got to make trade-offs about where, where we want to be. But at the moment, we don't have enough face masks to do that. And my view is we should prioritise health workers for that. Brendan, I've got a question for you. It comes from Matt. Will we now better value teachers, nurses, and aged care workers, some of the lowest paid people in our community? I think that's a great question. And I suspect the answer will be yes. I think we're already seeing this with, uh, with the celebration of healthcare workers um, across Europe, um, you know, clapping the NHS, um, the same in Italy and France. I think what's really interesting there is there's also been a lot of instances where the healthcare workers themselves are in fact clapping the cleaners uh, because they are in fact just as important to uh, stopping the spread of COVID as the, the frontline and more highly trained and, and uh, you know, high paid healthcare workers themselves. You know, I think that we have had an issue in Australia for a while where certain sectors of the economy where, um, where workers typically being gendered, childcare workers is a classic case, we've probably paid them less than we otherwise probably would in, a, in an open market with a different set of institutional arrangements. Um, and I suspect that those questions will, will come back again post-crisis. Here's another one for you, uh, Brendan. This is from Nathan. Will working from home become the new normal? Well, Paul, I think something I've really noticed is there's a real difference in the working from home arrangements between those uh, that are older and have these really nice homes and those that are younger and uh, are, in, are in less salubrious um, accommodation. So I think- You tell us, Brendan, please. Well, I think you can probably see from the backgrounds. Um, not a, not think, another dig at me, Brendan, please. <laughs> I think Paul's got the better bookcase, Stephen. Um, I, think, um, I think there will be a push to work more from home. Um, I think that uh, what we're learning is that people are adopting technologies that they really probably should have adopted a long time ago and, and didn't. Um, and so we've seen with Zoom, as John said, that we'll see a lot more meetings take place remotely. And I suspect that, that the trend towards um, working from home will probably increase for that reason. I think a colliery of that is we'll probably see more investment in housing because if people are going to be at home more, they will probably want to spend more on capital improvements to the house. 
Thanks, Brendan. Now we're getting close to time, I'm afraid, but I want to finish by asking you, John Daly, what's on the agenda for Grattan Institute over the coming weeks and months, John? So we're doing a lot of work, obviously, on COVID-19, uh, and that's obviously moved from the immediate, you know, should we stop and what should we stop to, so um, are things getting better? What's the right fiscal response? What's the right way to support households um, uh, and so on? Um, but I think at some stage in the next couple of months, we're gonna start worrying a lot more about the medium term. Um, uh, that's more than six months. That's kind of like the 18 month, two year thing, which says, at, at, you know, in six months time, all we're gonna have is a kind of normal, very bad recession. <laughs> um, uh, and that's going to be a tricky thing for government to navigate its way out of and government's going to have a lot more debt that sooner or later someone's going to have to pay for and we're going to have to worry about all of those kinds of questions. Um, so we're starting to turn our mind towards designing projects that are aimed at that, aimed at thinking, for example, about um, the way that we know that disadvantaged children will do much worse out of a period um, in which they don't have regular contract contact with teachers in person. So what kind of catch up programs might we want to design for them? So so projects like that are the kinds of things that we're talking, turning our minds to at Grattan. Um, and of course, that's in a world in which people's values have changed. Um, so I was talking a little bit earlier about um, the way that the way that we work and the way that we expect government to operate has changed, but also what we value has probably changed. Um, I suspect people now put more value on culture than they did. Um, because, you know, they've essentially wound up in their homes having to entertain themselves one way or another. Um, they're probably more people have discovered the virtues of home cooking. Um, I'm sure some at the end of this will be de delighted to kind of never do it again, but I suspect many will want to have a, a world in which they continue to do more of that. So I think it will change all of those kind of things, and we at Grattan need to be sensitive to that. Um, but we also need to be sensitive to... Um, uh, working out these much bigger changes. And we're indeed starting to think about trying to help governments put together a material programs. So we know that both state and federal governments now have effectively deferred their budgets to October. That means that by um, October, they're gonna have to think through, well, what is our plan for a post COVID world uh, in which essentially dealing with the disease and its immediate um, health and economic impact is not the only thing on the government agenda. Um, and uh, you know, our set of priorities that we delivered to governments in previous orange books, you know, is probably not the right set of priorities for that world. We are in a very different world. And so we're going to be putting some time and attention into thinking that through. Um, of course, um, as always with the things that we do at Grattan, and of course, we have a substantial capital fund that is worth less than it used to be. Um, uh, all of these things cost money, um, and we are very grateful for the support that we have been receiving um, uh, from people, as they say. We now really understand that policy matters. Um, that's another thing that's changed. I think people really understand that what government does and how it does it makes an enormous difference to people's welfare. And of course, that's the core business of Grattan, is trying to encourage governments to do that better. Uh, and so a big thank you at the end to all of the people who have been supporting us um, to do that work. It does make a difference. Uh, and we'd like to think that um, in the same way that Grattan has effectively been ahead of the coronavirus curve um, on a lot of the issues we've seen uh, already, um, we hope to stay ahead of the coronavirus, the post-coronavirus curve in terms of thinking about what should governments do uh, once we are, we all hope, in a world in which COVID is a little less central to our lives.
Thank you, John, and thank you, Stephen, Danielle, and Brendan, and thank you to you, our audience. We've been delighted with the response to these webinars, and we hope you've found today's session valuable. You can let your friends and colleagues know that they will be able to, view, to watch this webinar from later this afternoon on our website and our social media channels. Please keep in touch with Grattan via our website, wash your hands and keep your distance. Thanks for watching. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate.